In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. I'm very happy actually to be with you for the second time, and I received all your questions. And since these are very important questions, we have only one hour. So I agreed with uh, Dr. Caroline to dedicate all this session for answering your question. And hopefully if there are extra time, I know you need to leave by 3.55. If there are extra time for any comments or any more questions from you, uh, I will be willing to listen to your comments. I will answer the question according to the order uh, that were sent to me. First question about Christianity. As a being that is both divine and human, could Jesus have committed a sin as a result of his human nature while still being divine? Did his divine nature overshadow his human nature at those moments where he could have potentially sinned? To answer this question, I like to explain that the divinity did not unite with a human being but the divinity took the human nature the complete human nature from saint mary mother of god and the purpose of incarnation as explained by saint Athanasius in his famous book which i hope that all of you you read it the incarnation of the logos by saint Athanasius the purpose of incarnation actually is to cleanse our humanity from the corruption from the sin that's why the divinity united with the humanity that that he took from saint mary mother of god and in the same moment in which the humanity was united with the divinity he cleansed completely the human nature from any corruption, from any sin, from any inclination to sin. That's why it was impossible for our Lord Jesus Christ to sin or to commit sin. Yes, he was tempted by sin. Satan tempted him, as we read in Matthew chapter 4, but he defeated the sin, as we read in the temptation on the mountain. And St. Paul, in Hebrews chapter 4, he said he was tempted like us and he resembled us in everything except for sin alone. And St. Peter said he is separate from the sinners and he is the Holy One. And Archangel Gabriel in the Annunciation to St. Mary, he told her and the Holy One who is born of you will be called Son of God. So we know that Jesus Christ is perfect, holy, without any sin. Having said this, another reason of incarnation is to carry our sin and to die on the cross on our behalf. That's why St. Paul said, He who did not know sin became sin for our sake. So although he did not know sin, he did not commit any sin, but he carried all our sins. John the Baptist, when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ, said, This is the Lamb of God who carries the sins of the whole world. In the Old Testament, 
there was a sacrifice called sacrifice of sin and sin offering and trespass offering. In this sacrifice, they bring a lamb without any blemish. And then the person put his hand on the head of the lamb and confess his sins. So the sins is transferred from the person to the lamb. This, this lamb is slaughtered. Definitely, this lamb was a, just a symbol for the Lord Jesus Christ. So as the sin was transferred from the sinner to the lamb, all the sins of humanity from Adam to the end of the ages were placed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he became sin and he offered himself on the cross. So yes, he is a perfect human and a perfect divine. But because of the union between the divinity and the humanity, he never committed sin, although he carried all our sins. Second question, question about the Coptic Orthodox Church beliefs. As monophysite, what do you mean when you speak of the composite nature, divine and human of Jesus Christ? Is this a theology where humanity and divinity fully encompass the Savior, or it is shared nature? First, I like to say we are not monophysite. Unfortunately, in most of the literature, they mention the Coptic people as monophysite. And we never actually, since the fourth century, we never accepted monophysitism. We are mea, mea physite. And I like to explain the difference between monophysite, mea physite, and diophysite. Physis means nature, like physics. Physis means nature. Mono means a single, single nature, which means either divinity or humanity. And this is a heresy the church rejected. Dio means two, two natures. Mea means one from two, one from two. So according to St. Cyril of Alexandria, when he said, Mea thesis to Eu to Theo Cesarcomini, that's Greek, which means one nature to the incarnated Son of God. So we believe in Mea thesis. We never ever believed in monophysis. How we understand the Mea thesis? As I said a few minutes ago, the divinity of the second hypostasis, the Son, took a perfect and a full humanity from St. Mary. And these two natures united together in a mysterious way, in a mystical way, without confusion, without alteration, without a change. So nobody can explain how this union happened. It's a mystery. So we say that Jesus Christ is a perfect human and a perfect divine. And these two natures are united together in the nature of the incarnated Son of God. And we abide to the teaching of St. Cyril of Alexandria when he said, Mea thesis to Eu to Theo Cesarcomini, one nature to the incarnated Son of God. Why we reject the monophysitism? Because monophysitism, either the humanity was not real, 
then the Lord Jesus Christ and all the incarnation which has the goal of purifying our nature was just fake or the divinity did not unite with the humanity which means Jesus is just a regular human being like all of us and he cannot save that's why the union between the perfect humanity and the perfect divinity is very very important why we reject the diophysis the two nature because if the two natures are separate from each other then Jesus again is limited and he cannot save all of us he cannot die on our behalf in order for Jesus Christ to redeem and save the whole world the whole humanity from Adam to the end of the ages he must be infinite and to be infinite his humanity should actually be united with his divinity and how these natures were together Sincere of Alexandria and there is a very good book I like you to read it also it's called the unity of Christ by Sincere of Alexandria it's a very good book explaining the two natures in this book he said he used this term exchange of properties exchange of properties meaning the properties of the humanity I can ascribe it to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and also the uh, properties of the divinity I can prescribe it to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because he has the two natures united so I can say Jesus Christ is eternal or I can say um, Jesus Christ is God the judge of the whole world also this property of any particular to the divinity but I can ascribe it to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ I can say Jesus Christ will judge the world uh, who's the judge of the world God but since this property of the divinity I can ascribe it to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, I, can I say God uh, became hungry got tired speaking about Jesus Christ yes because Jesus is the son of God the true son of God so if I say he is tired he he was hungry as we read in um, or or um, or God died on the cross definitely I'm not saying God in his divinity died but I'm speaking about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ this is what we call the exchange of properties and sincere for Alexandria elaborated more about this in his book the union of christ or unity of of christ another question in reading i found many articles based on the opinions of christ having two natures one being fully divine and one being fully human i just was wanting to get a little more detail on what is truly meant by this I think I answered this already. Jesus is perfect human and perfect divine. And these two natures are united together without mingling, without confusion, and without alteration. And now we are speaking about the one nature of the incarnated Son of God, Mea Thesis to Eu to Theo to Subcommune. What does the Coptic Church believe is necessary for salvation? Salvation is mainly by the grace of God. As uh, 
St. Paul said, by grace you were saved. Before Christ, we were born as sinners and we had the law. And if we keep the whole law, then we will be saved. But no one was able to keep the whole law. And if you break one of the commandments, you are guilty of all. That's why the law came and failed to save the humanity. Then as we read in John chapter 1, law was given by Moses, but grace and truth given by Jesus Christ. Jesus came by grace and he fulfilled the law on our behalf. As he said to John the Baptist, we ought to fulfill all the righteousness of the law. So he fulfilled all the law on our behalf. And then when we are united with him, his righteousness became our righteousness. And how actually we receive his righteousness, how we are united with him. So the, the baby that's born now, he is born with corrupted nature. He is born with the original sin. When this baby is baptized in baptism, he puts on Christ, as St. Paul said. So if he puts on Christ, means he is united with Christ, then the righteousness of Christ will be considered his own righteousness. Then he is saved. What if this child grew up and then committed any sin? The Lord actually gave us two sacraments, the sacrament of repentance and confession and the sacrament of communion in order to wash our sins, to be renewed and to be reunited with Christ. So when we sin and we practice the sacrament of repentance and confession and the sacrament of communion, our sins are uh, forgiven. And then we are united with Christ again and we are saved. For example, our clothes. Our clothes gets dirty every day, but when we wash it, it's clean. So when somebody sees me, he finds my clothes clean, not because my clothes never gets dirty, but because I wash them. In the same way, when we wash our sins daily in repentance, confession and communion, then we are clean, we are righteous. This is the righteousness of Christ versus the righteousness of the law in the Old Testament. So what is necessary for salvation in the Coptic Church according to the teaching of the scripture? Number one, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to believe that his salvation is a free gift given to you and to everyone who believes in him. In order to receive this gift, you need actually to be united with him. That's how this gift works. Like a prince want to give the kingdom to a girl. The only way to give the kingdom to this girl by uniting with her, by marrying her. That's why Jesus Christ, one of his titles, the bridegroom and are his bride. So this, through this marriage, through this union with the Lord Jesus Christ, we are saved. This union is happening through the sacraments of the church, like baptism, confirmation, repentance, and communion. So these are four sacraments are very essential for salvation because in baptism, we put on Christ, as St. Paul said. In chrismation, 
we have the Holy Spirit abiding in us. As also St. Paul said, you are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit abide in you. In repentance and confession, our sins are forgiven in communion or are united with the Lord Jesus Christ. Another question, how does the Coptic Church view uh, homosexuality? As it is clear from the scripture, homosexuality is a sin, like any sin, like lying, like cursing, like judging, it is a sin. And the Bible teaches us to love the sinner, but to hate the sin. And if we love somebody, we need actually to help him to repent and get rid of the sin. Because a person who is abiding in sin or living in sin is going in the right in the wrong direction. For example, if you are driving and a person whom you really, really love, you saw him driving in the wrong direction, you will actually stop him and tell him that's the wrong direction. You will not reach your destination. You need actually to make a U-turn to go in the right direction. That's why we love them. We pray for them. But we have responsibility to tell them that is the wrong direction. You cannot reach the destination of the kingdom of God if you continue in this road. That's why you need to make a U-turn and you need to repent and you need to live according to the teaching of the scripture. And in this way, actually, you will have inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. Another question with regards to the doctrine of Sola Scriptura. Why does the Coptic Church view this theology as so dangerous? It seems as though even tradition must answer to the word of God. Sola Scriptura means only what's written in the scripture. Sola, that's only. The problem with this, which came first? The scripture or the holy tradition? What I'm trying to say, in the first century, there were many gospels. Some of them were false and some were true. Who decided this is a false book and this is a true book? The church, the whole tradition. So when the church said the gospel of Matthew is a true gospel, is authentic gospel, but the gospel of um, Barnabas is a false gospel. That's why we included Matthew in the canon and we rejected Barnabas, the gospel of Barnabas. Then how later on we say no, no tradition at all. I agree with what you said here, even tradition must answer to the word of God. Absolutely. I agree with this 100% because the highest point in the tradition of the church is the scripture and any other tradition. We need to check it against the scripture. If it contradicts with the scripture, then we will reject it. But if it goes with the scripture, it goes with the teaching of the scripture, we will accept it even if it is not literally in the scripture. Another question. I read that no sacrament can be taken on the same day after the person has taken Holy Communion. Why is this? And may other sacraments occur on the same day prior to the taking of the Holy Communion. Holy Communion is considered the peak of all sacraments. It's, it's like the wedding. 
what, what I'm trying to say, any sacrament prepares like a prerequisite for the Holy Communion. You cannot take Holy Communion and then you take the prerequisite. And let me explain what do you mean by prerequisite. Repentance and confession. Do you remember on Covenant Thursday when the Lord washed the feet of the disciple before giving them his body and his blood? If you think about it, the Lord told them, number one, you don't understand what I'm doing, but you will understand it. Then it was not just physical washing. There is a, a meaning behind it. And when Peter refused first that the Lord wash his feet, and later on, he said to the Lord, don't not only my feet, but wash my head and my hand. The Lord told him, he who is bathed does not need except to wash his feet. And the third point I like to mention about washing the feet, the Lord said to Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have portion with me. So if we put all these things together, what does this mean? Washing the feet is not just a physical washing of the feet from the dirt but has a spiritual meaning. When we walk, our feet get dirty. So in our journey in life, our spiritual feet get dirty when we commit sin. So washing the feet means forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of sins. That's why the Lord said to Peter, who he is bathed does not need except, except washing his feet. Bathing here means baptism. So he who is baptized, doesn't need except washing his feet, which means after I, I am baptized, what I need is repentance and confession. Not every time I sin, I become baptized again. And when the Lord said to Peter, if I don't wash you, you will have no portion with me. Meaning, if I don't wash your feet, you cannot take communion with me because forgiveness of sins should actually happen before uniting with Christ, because there is no union between darkness and light. If I'm in sin, then I'm in darkness. How can I be in union with the light? That's why the sacrament of repentance and confession must be practiced before communion. And the Lord told them, as I wash my feet, uh, as I wash your feet, go and wash the feet of one another, which means as I forgive your sin, go forgive the sins of others. And he confirmed this after his resurrection, when he said, he breathed in the face of his holy disciples and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. The same for other sacrament. Baptism also is for forgiveness of sins. As we read in the book of Acts, when Ananias baptized St. Paul before his after his conversion, he told him, be baptized and wash your sins. So how can I be united with Christ and then be baptized? So baptism should happen before communion. Again, chrismation by the holy oil, uh, Mayrun, to be a vessel of the Holy Spirit, to be prepared as a bride of Christ, to be united with the bridegroom, should happen before communion. In the same way in marriage or unction of the sick or priesthood, communion is considered the sacrament of all sacraments. That's why all these sacraments should happen and be practiced before communion. Uh, definitely, if somebody got very, very sick after communion, definitely you can anoint him with the holy oil. Nothing wrong with that.
would the baptism of an individual by sprinkling not in any dire situation but due to the fact they were raised in a denomination that always baptized by sprinkling be recognized by the Coptic Church baptism the word baptisma baptisma in, um, in the Greek language means die d-y-e die d-y-e if you have uh, you know a piece of garment and you want to die you have to immerse it completely you cannot sprinkle the dye on it uh, otherwise it, it, it will have just some spots and in matthew chapter 3 when we read about the baptism of jesus christ we we read when he ascended from the waters which means he was totally immersed again in acts chapter 8 when we read about the baptism of the ethiopian eunuch again when they ascend from the water philip and the ethiopian eunuch and saint paul said we are buried with him in baptism Romans chapter 6 so burial i cannot say sprinkling uh, will be like burial so burial it has to be by total immersion so sprinkling will not be accepted in the coptic orthodox church based on the teaching of the scripture what is the role of the pope of the coptic orthodox church as compared to the pope of the roman catholic church in the catholic church the pope is the head of the church and is the highest authority of the church in the coptic church the highest authority is the holy synod not the pope and the pope is not like um, the president or the ruler or highest authority than other bishops that's why in the orthodox tradition we call the pope first among equal so all the bishops are equal including the pope but he is first among them first among equal and this actually in application to the word of the lord jesus christ when he told us the rulers of the world rule it over them but as for you this should not be among you if you want to be the first be the last of all if you want to be the greatest be the servant of all that's why the principle of being the head of the church or the highest authority it is not in the orthodox church the pope is first among equal and the highest authority is the holy synod also the catholic church believes the infallibility of the pope regarding the teaching especially the teaching ex cathedra when he says from the throne but in the coptic church we don't believe in in the infallibility all of us who are human beings all of us who are fallible so the infallibility only for god and the final doctrine should be coming from the holy synod as happened in Acts, so in Acts chapter 15 when there was a dispute about how to accept the Gentiles and the Judaizers were saying Gentiles should be circumcised and keep all the Jewish tradition so what happened all the apostles convened in Jerusalem headed by James the bishop of Jerusalem and they discussed the matter and made resolution in the same way when there is a dispute among any doctrine 
we discuss it together in a council, in a synod. So the Coptic Church doesn't believe in the infallibility of the Pope like the Roman Catholic Church. Does the Coptic Church believe in God's second coming? Yes, of course we believe in his second coming. And this actually we recited in the creed. We believe in our Lord, we believe in one God, God the Father, the Pantocrator, creator of heaven and earth and of all things seen and unseen. So we, we believe in his second coming. And actually the greeting among the first Christian, Maran Atha, which means the Lord is at hand. So the church were reminding one another that the Lord is coming very soon. And as we read in the end of the book of um, Revelation, Amen, come, O Lord Jesus. How does someone officially join or become member of the Coptic Church? Number one, actually, he should study and understand the doctrine and the dogmas as understood by the Coptic Orthodox Church. And once his faith is confirmed, the second step will be a repentance and confession. As we read in Acts chapter 2, when the people believed and asked Peter, what should we do? He told them, repent and be baptized. So repentance precedes baptism. So the person should repent and confess uh, his sins. Then actually comes the um, baptism. So number one, to believe. Number two, to repent. Number three, to be baptized. Number four, to be chrismated. So chrismated means to be confirmed in the Coptic Orthodox Church, in the Orthodox Church. And after this, he takes communion and then he becomes an active member in the Coptic Orthodox Church. These are the steps for a person to officially join the Coptic Orthodox Church. Another question. I was a little confused reading about the Coptic calendar. Could you explain it and how the Coptic Church follow, follows it today? Coptic calendar actually is an old Egyptian calendar. The, the, the calendar exists even before Egypt believed in Christianity. It is the old Egyptian calendar. And this calendar, because Egypt was famous with agriculture, so the, the months are divided based on the seasons of planting and harvesting. And the new Coptic year usually comes on uh, September 11, except in the leap year, it, it starts September 12. And it is 12 months, beside a short month, each month is 30 days. Uh, there is a little month, five days. So in the regular year, it is 365 days. In the leap year, this short month is six days. So it will be 366 days. And the leap year comes once every four years. It starts in September, as I told you. And when Diocletian, Emperor Diocletian, persecuted the church and killed many, many Christians, so in order to commemorate the martyrs, the Coptic church decided to take from year 284 
which is the year of the reign of Emperor Diocletian, to be the first year of the Coptic year. And we call it Anomartyrdom, the year of the martyrs, to commemorate the martyrs of the church. So the difference between the Gregorian calendar and the Coptic calendar is 284 years. Because, as I told you, the church changes the calendar to start from 284 to be the first year of the Coptic year in commemoration of the martyrs that shed their blood for the name of Christ. And when you go actually to any Coptic church, they, you will hear something like, uh, today is the fifth day of the Coptic month, Baramhat. So we celebrate all our feasts based on the Coptic year. Uh, for example, Nativity, we celebrate it on Kiak. Uh, Nativity is another name for Christmas. We celebrate it on Kiak 29th. So uh, that is the Coptic uh, calendar. But as I told you, it is the old Egyptian calendar. And all the feasts are according to the Coptic calendar. Another question, do people within the Coptic Church celebrate Christmas on January 7th instead of December 25th? Let me explain this. In the 11th century, uh, before Pope Gregory changed the calendar from the Julian calendar to the uh, Gregorian calendar. All, all Christians, including the Coptic Church, celebrated Christmas on December 25th. And at that time, December 25th corresponded to Kiak 29th in the Coptic calendar. So Kiak 29th actually correspond to December 25th. So we were celebrating on December 25th. Then Pope Gregory found that the calendar is not accurate. The Julian calendar is not accurate. So he said the year according to the Gregorian calendar is not 365 days plus six hours, and these six hours make one day every four, um, four years. He said, no, the year is 365, six hour minus 11 minute, and I think 32 seconds. And he made calculation and he said, these 11 minute yeah. and 32 seconds actually compose one day every 400 year, every 400 year. So to adjust the calendar, he said, we need to drop three days every 400 years to adjust the calendar. So, you know, in the first 400 years, he dropped three days. Then in the second 300 years, dropped another three days. In the third 300 years, he dropped another three days. So until the, the 16th century, until the 16th century, these are four 400. So he dropped 12 days. When he dropped 12 days, he said, today is October 5th, so tomorrow will be October 17, because he dropped, as I told you, 12 days. And then from the 16th century until now, there are another 400 years. So it was dropped another three days. So now the difference between the Julian calendar and the Gregorian calendar are 15 days. Because this drop in the calendar, Kiak 29th, which is a Coptic day for Christmas, it used to correspond to December 25th, 
Now it corresponds to January 7. These are the 15 days difference between the Julian and the Gregorian calendar. But since we celebrate on the Coptic calendar, so we did not change the Coptic calendar. Coptic calendar is Kek 29th. So Kek 29th before the 16th century was corresponding to uh, December 25th. Now after the Gregorian change in the calendar and he dropped 15 days, so now Kek 29th correspond to January 7th. What are some misconceptions that people have about the Coptic Orthodox Church? The main misconception, as I told you, when the people in most Western literature describe us as monophysite. And we are non, not monophysite as explained, we are meophysite. Uh, that's the main misconception that I hope uh, the Western uh, literature corrected this. We never ever accepted monophysitism as our doctrine. How did the Coptic Church practices and teaching remain steady throughout the years instead of changing some over time like other churches? Did the Coptic scripture undergo different translations? The Orthodox Church is like a high-rising building. What do you mean high-rising building? You built, for example, if you can imagine high-rising building, 21 stories or floors. So each floor is built on the other. The 15th built on the 14th floor, 16 built on the 15th floor. So each floor is like a century. So there are changes, but changes does not contradict with the foundation that was built and does not contradict. We, we don't change the principle, but we change the practices. There is difference between the principle and the practice. For example, the principle is to pray. That's the principle. We cannot change principle. But how to pray is different. We used to pray in Coptic language. Now, when Arabs invaded Egypt and Egyptians started to speak Arabic, we switched from uh, uh, Coptic to Arabic. When we came here to America, and the younger generation does not speak Arabic, we switch it to English. So there are changes here to adapt with the culture, but the changes are in the practice, not in the principle. So the principle of faith, we cannot change them, but the practices, we change them to meet the needs of the people and the needs of the, uh, the time. Uh, regarding the Coptic scripture, we had or we have um, the Coptic translation of the scripture. When the scripture translated from Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament, and from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, were translated to Coptic. And all the scholars, they say the Coptic translation is one of the most accurate translation. But unfortunately, we did not translate from Coptic to Arabic or from Coptic to English. 
So now we are using the current translation. For example, in the Arabic, we use the Van Dyck translation, which actually is a Protestant translation. And in English, uh, uh, we use uh, the New King James. We use the Septuagint for the Old Testament. Uh, some use the RSV. So we are using the current translation, but unfortunately, we don't have our own translation uh, for the scripture. What does the Coptic Church theology on Holy Spirit? Coming from a Pentecostal background, I believe in the gifts of the Spirit mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Is it something that the Coptic Church believe in, or maybe partially believe in? Definitely we believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's mentioned in four references actually in the Bible, or five references. In Romans 12, in Ephesians chapter 4, 1 Peter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So there are five references about the gifts of the Spirit. The main difference between the Coptic Church or the Orthodox understanding of the gifts and the Pentecostal understanding, the Pentecostal believe that gifts are the sign of being filled with the Spirit. So if you are filled with the Spirit, then you must speak in tongues, for example. The Coptic Church, based on 1 Corinthians chapter 13, St. Paul said, if I speak in tongues, but I don't have love, I am nothing. So the signs of being filled of the Spirit is not the gift, but the fruit of the Spirit. So when we are filled with the Spirit, we bear the fruit of the Spirit. Gifts are given uh, according to the economy of God for the needs of the people. Uh, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the one that you referenced, he said, do all speak in tongues? Definitely not. So it doesn't mean if I am filled with the Spirit, I must speak in tongue. But if I am filled with the Spirit, I must carry the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's the main difference. Uh, gifts definitely exist in the Coptic Church and we believe in it. But gifts are not the sign that we are filled with the Spirit and also are not indication that this person is holy and will be saved. We read in Matthew chapter 7, people will come to the Lord in your name, we perform a miracle. In your name, we cast out demons, but the Lord will tell them, depart from me, I don't know you. So gifts will not qualify us to go to heaven, and gifts are not the sign that we are filled with the Spirit. Fruits are. The fruit of the Spirit is the sign that I'm filled with the Spirit, and this actually will uh, get me to heaven. What is the eschatology of the Coptic Church? Eschatology means the uh, eternal life. We believe in the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in his second coming, he will take the believers with him. He will come to judge the world in righteousness. So the believers will go with him to the kingdom of God, to heaven. And the sinners who rejected the Lord Jesus Christ did not believe in him or did not live a life of godliness and holiness, unfortunately will be cast into the fire, the eternal fire. Does the Coptic Church believe in a literal place of heaven and hell in an afterlife? 
I don't know what they mean by the word literal, because it is a spiritual world. I cannot perceive it in a physical terms. But yes, the heaven and, and, and hell are not conditioned, but they are places. Uh, so my, my concern here is the word literal. So yes, it's a place. It's a place. As the Lord said in the story of Lazarus and rich man, Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham and the rich man was in, in another place and there was a big gap between both of them. So heaven and hell are places. They are not conditioned. They are not a status, but they are places in eternal life. What does asceticism look like for the members of Southern Diocese? Does it differ from asceticism of early members? Definitely you, you were different. We cannot say you are living the same asceticism like the early church. Uh, now our fasting, for example, now our fasting the great fast. We should abstain and then we should actually eat veg vegan food. And we should abstain until 6 p.m. sunset every day. Very, very rare people actually abstain until 6 p.m. And now actually the, the imitation, there is, you know, food like imitation of cheese, imitation of... Uh, and, and people eat all of these things, yeah. So definitely uh, I cannot say you are practicing the same asceticism like the early church. Hopefully one day we can, we can actually live in the same level of asceticism like the first church, as St. Paul said, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest after I preach to others, I myself be disqualified. The site focused on Southern Diocese, are there are no. other dioceses? Yes, there is Diocese of Los Angeles, there is Diocese of uh, both Carolinas and Kentucky, there is Diocese of Virginia, Diocese of Midwest Cleveland, Ohio and Indiana, there is Diocese of Pennsylvania, there is Diocese of New York, and there is the Archdiocese in New Jersey, besides two dioceses in uh, Canada. So, uh, Southern Diocese is not the only diocese in America. Besides, we have many dioceses in Europe, uh, in Australia, of course in Egypt, in Africa. So, there are several dioceses. Our Holy Synod has more than 120 bishops, and every bishop is responsible of a diocese. Again, the reading says there are 62 churches in the Southern Diocese. Do you know how many of these churches are located in Tennessee specifically? In, in Nashville, Tennessee, we have 12 churches in Nashville, Tennessee. But we have in Clarksville another church, we have in Chattanooga, we have in Knoxville, we have a church also in Memphis. So these are the churches in uh, Tennessee. Why is Florida considered its own region in the diocese? Actually, because the diocese extends from Florida to Arizona. So we divided the diocese into three regions uh, based on the number of the churches in every region. Florida has more than 20 churches. So that's one region. Then Tennessee and uh, Georgia and Louisiana, another reason. Then from Texas to Arizona, a third uh, region. Uh, this classification based on the number of families and number of uh, churches in every 
region. So the diocese actually is three regions. Does the diocese of Southern States communicate a lot with Catholic Church and other countries? Yes. All the time we have communication with all other churches. I, I like to cover the four question quickly. What does the monastic life look like for the Coptic Church? We are keeping the three vows, poverty, obedience, and uh, chastity. Uh, but as uh, you said in the asceticism, we are not actually walking in the same ascetic level. But the principles are the same, but there is changes in practice. As I said, principles, same changes in practice. What did it look like for you to become ordained into priesthood in other world? What was the process for you and how did you know that's what you wanted to do? Priesthood in the Coptic Church is a calling. So when the bishop of my monastery called me, I had peace in my heart. This is a calling from God. That's why I accept it. It's a calling. I cannot go and say, I want to be a priest. Calling means I will be called into priesthood but I cannot go and apply to be a priest. What's the role of the first bishop in the Catholic Orthodox Church? I don't know what you mean by first bishop, but the bishop actually oversees, bishop episcopus means overseer, so he oversees the priests and the churches in his diocese. How has Bishop Yusuf's uh, role changed with respect to social media? in the past decade, that's <laughs> a big question. But we are using actually social media to preach the word of God. So we have channel on SoundCloud, have channel on YouTube. So we are trying to make the best of the social media to serve the word of God. Thanks so much for giving me opportunity to answer your question. I wish to have more time to listen to your comments. But thanks so much, and I hope that I was able to address all your concerns and your questions. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.